...bettering earlier Olympic gold medal times for the mile, set by runners in their 20s. This is because humans are learning to expand their minds while the body merely follows. And while many will say that these faster running times are just because of better vitamins, training, and nutrition, that really doesn't explain it. Because the same improvement hasn't happened with racehorses. Over the same period of time, horses have also had better training and nutrition. They've even had controlled breeding. Yet no such astounding improvements in the times of racehorses has occurred. Human athletic accomplishments keep soaring beyond what we once believed possible. Human scientific accomplishments keep soaring as well. Human technological accomplishments are keeping pace. Perhaps the reason is simple. Human beings are finding greater and greater power within their minds. Humans are learning to stop lying about their limits. In this case, a sense of purpose replaces the lies inside the personal motivational system. We can replace a river of lies with a river of dreams. It's the same imagination that creates both, so why not take the dreams? These are the 17 lies that are in the way of those dreams, and to see them is to see them disappear. Part 1. Lying to the Soul Lie number one, it's who you know. Everyone says it's who you know, but it's not who you know. That's a lie. The truth is that it's what you do. And the promise of what you can do doesn't always have to be spoken. It can be contained in your work, such as when a baseball scout says that a young player shows promise, or when a rock group releases a promising first album. It's right there in the work. In the world of success, who you know is nothing. What you do with who you know is everything. The doing is the thing that brings success. For five years of my life, I was a full-time songwriter. It was the hardest work I've ever done. For me, there was no more difficult way to make a living writing than to make it trying to write a hit song. One had to write everything perfectly. Everything had to obey rhyme schemes and meter, and one had to have song titles and concepts that stood out above the millions of other songs vying for a recording artist's attention. It was that degree of difficulty that made it so tempting to live by a lie. A lie like, it's who you know. The lie softened the blows. I worked in the music business with the highly talented Fred Knipe. He and I invested a huge amount of our time in, it's who you know. We took trips wrote letters, and made phone calls to expand our network of connections in the music business. We networked and schmoozed. When we were among groups of music executives, we worked the room. We got to know a lot of key figures on a lot of levels. And if there was ever time left over, we also wrote songs. In the end, however, our biggest financial successes came from people who we did not know. In the end, Networking meant nothing at all. The schmoozing was an empty waste of time and ego. Country singer Don Williams had a number one hit with Fred's Listen to the Radio and a popular album cut with Fred's and my I Can't Get to You From Here. But we didn't know him or anyone associated with him. Those songs were recorded because his producer had pulled our envelope out of a huge pile of unsolicited songs played the songs, and fell in love with them. 
We didn't know him, and he didn't know us. We didn't even know his address. We sent the songs to Don Williams' label address at Columbia Records. We got the address from an album cover, something any person in any music store could have done. After all those hours invested in networking, building relationships, and making the right connections, it was what we did in the writing of those songs that the great producer Garth Fundus heard and converted into musical success. It wasn't who we knew. It was what we did. As I look back on my five years in the songwriting business, I realize that it was always the best songs that actually went out there and found places to bloom. It wasn't who we knew. It was what we did when we wrote them. Fred and I wrote The Right Side of the Wrong Bed with Duncan Stitt, turned it loose, and watched it find its own places to bloom. It had nothing to do with our networking and schmoozing. It landed on a Mickey Gilly album, and then, from that success, it seemed to find its own way onto Michael Landon's Highway to Heaven show. Telling myself the lie that success depends on who you know was a deliberate attempt to avoid the real work of writing something extraordinary. It was an attempt to justify putting my time into easier, softer pursuits. Every time we lie to ourselves like this, we are trying not to go for it. It was this same lie, it's who you know, that also kept me from writing books for many, many years. I always told myself that if you were an unknown writer and didn't know anybody in publishing, then you wouldn't have much of a chance in sending off an unsolicited manuscript somewhere. Now that my first books have become fairly successful, it hurts to think back on how close I came to throwing it all away, simply because I had talked myself into thinking that I didn't know anybody important enough to get things published. I had been giving out a photocopied handout in my seminars called 21 Ways to Motivate Yourself. Because of the good response I always got from people who took the pamphlet home, I began to think that I might have the potential for a book in those 21 ways, especially when I began adding new ways in every course so that the number rapidly grew far beyond 21. But every time I thought about publishing a book, I ran up against the self-deceit that had always kept me out of action. It's who you know. I didn't know anyone in publishing. I didn't know any literary agents. I barely knew anyone in New York. I didn't have a chance. Early one summer, I was looking for some computer work for my daughter Stephanie to do. She wanted to earn money for summer camp, so I finally created a work project for her. I bought a book that listed all the publishers of books. It was the kind of book that I'd always dismissed as being directed at the poor, stupid people who didn't know how hard it was to get published. I went through the book and picked out about 60 publishers who published nonfiction. I gave the book to Stephanie, along with a letter to write to each publisher about my book in progress, 100 Ways to Motivate Yourself. I gave her the 21 Ways to Motivate Yourself handout to send with the letter of proposal to publishers. She went to work on the computer, writing each letter differently and tailoring each one to each particular publisher. She worked long and hard. I remember looking in on her as she sat at the computer in my home office late into the night. I thought that it was a little sad that this lovely 14-year-old girl was working so hard for nothing. This was just make work. Finally, Stephanie was finished with her work, and 60 large envelopes were perfectly filled and addressed to the prospective publishers. I paid her for her efforts. She went off to her camp, saying to me, Hey, Dad, 
That's going to be really neat to have a book out that's written by you. I smiled and said, yes, that would be neat. But we'll have to see what the level of interest is because there are no guarantees. Secretly, I was thinking, poor thing. She doesn't know. She's naive. She doesn't realize that in the vicious dog-eat-dog -dog world of publishing, it's not what you've got. It's who you know. So I put the 60 large envelopes in the back seat of my car, and I let them sit there for many days. I thought about the postage it would take to mail them all, and I began to think about simply disposing of them in a trash can. Stephanie wouldn't know. I'd explain when she got home from camp about how hard it is to get anything published. I came very close to throwing them all away. Then I remembered when I was a small boy in Michigan, walking along the railroad tracks with my friend Terry Hill and seeing huge bundles of the shopping newspapers down by the tracks. What are these? I asked Terry. He said that people who had a shopping newspaper route would go to the tracks, throw their papers away, and then report them as delivered to collect their money. Back then I was shocked that someone could do that and live with themselves afterward. Now I realize I was about to do the same thing. Newsboys were betraying the paper. I was about to betray myself. So I couldn't make myself do it, not because of my own great character, but because of Stephanie. I could not forget that picture of her sitting there late at night in her naivete, working so hard to write all those letters, and I couldn't make myself throw the envelopes away, so I mailed them. There goes nothing, I sighed as I drove away from the post office, believing I'd just wasted a lot of time and money. And then it happened. A little more than three weeks after I mailed the envelopes, the calls. First one publisher, then another. Some publishers were medium-sized. Some were very small, but some were large, too. Doubleday called. Berkeley called. John Wiley and Sons and Career Press called. They liked the book idea and wanted to talk about publishing it. I was stunned and dumbfounded. In less than three weeks, there were seven credible publishers who wanted the book. I was beside myself with joy. I thought back on all those years, ever since I was a little boy, when I walked through bookstores wondering what it would be like to have my own book in a store, and now it might really be happening. It was hard to realize it was really happening, because it went against my own self-authored truth. It's who you know. As I'd gotten older, I'd begun to convince myself of how impossible my childhood dream of writing books would be. You had to have connections. Everybody knows that. Everyone tells you that. But here were publishers calling. What was going on? In my joy, I called Stephanie at her camp in Michigan. She came to the phone out of breath from some game she'd been playing. I said, Stephanie, guess what? You know those letters you worked on and the envelopes you made and all that? Yes. Well, guess what? I've got seven publishers interested in the book. Seven publishers who want the book. They called me. I didn't call them. Can you believe it? There was a long silence on the other end of the phone. Stephanie? I asked. The silence continued, and then she said, Only seven? I was at a loss for words. I hurried on to explain to her that even one publisher would be fine with me, and it's hard to get a book published if you... But then I shut up. I realized that I was furthering the lie. I realized that the very reason the book was going to be published 
was because Stephanie had never been sold that lie, so I wasn't going to sell it to her now. I wished her well, and she said goodbye and congratulations, then she ran back to her game. The call was no surprise to her. She knew the book would be published because I had forgotten to teach her how impossible that would be. Lie number two. There's something wrong with me. The great professor of linguistics, S.I. Hayakawa, said that there were basically two kinds of people. The kind of person who failed at something and said, I failed at that. And the kind of person who failed at something and said, I'm a failure. The first person is telling the truth, and the second person is not. I'm a failure. That claim doesn't always appear to the outsider to be a lie. It can look like a sad form of self-acceptance. In fact, we can even associate such globalizing, such exaggerating, with truthful confession, like, why not admit it, I'm a failure? However, it is a lie, and the lie is intentional. The payoff to this lie? If I'm already a failure, how can I be criticized for not doing something great? The consequences of this self-deception are huge. In his book, Cognitive Theories and Emotional Disorders, psychiatrist Aaron Beck illuminates the consequences this way. Quote, His wife was upset because the children were slow in getting dressed. He thought, I'm a poor father because the children are not better disciplined. He noticed that this showed he was a poor husband. While driving to work, he thought, I must be a poor driver or other cars would not be passing me. As he arrived at work, he noticed some of the other personnel had already arrived. He thought, I can't be very dedicated, or I would have come earlier. When he noticed folders and papers piled up on his desk, he concluded, I'm a poor organizer, because I have so much work to do. Unquote. You can see what this man is doing to himself. He's taking innocent, meaningless situations and adding his own devastating meaning. He's turning them into indictments of himself. And because the sum of these unnecessary indictments causes him to believe that he is defective, he is killing his own spirit. I used to do the same thing all the time. I used to tell myself that there was something wrong with me deep down inside. This kind of self-talk always kept me out of action. It removed all sense of purpose. That's what a lie to the soul is unconsciously designed to do. There is some kind of voice in us, always in us, that says it's not safe to live on purpose. It's not safe to express yourself completely in the living of your true life. That's too big an advantage.